Today on Ag News Daily. I saw a statistic from the U.S. Department of Agriculture that there has been a 200% increase in the volume of rail car deliveries to the export terminals near New Orleans. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here along with my co-host, Mike Pearson. We are shy today from Madison, but uh, we're going to keep the podcast going strong. We are. We've got some news. We've got some markets. We've got a conversation to have. We've got all sorts of things coming down the pipeline, Delaney. But let's bring us up to speed. What are some of the news events that are leaping off the page at Mm. you today that our listeners need to be aware of? Yeah, it's a bit of a slow news day, I'm afraid to say, Mike. But it looks like U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer was trying to convince House Democrat members to sign off on the USMCA agreement, and it sounds like that didn't necessarily go over too well for him. It sounds like a lot of the folks there that were listening to his chit-chat, or or whatever you want to call it, said they still weren't really convinced that they were going to implement the changes. They also said they weren't impressed when Lighthizer made the comment that there didn't need to be any changes to the text of the agreement. He didn't he said, quote, didn't think it was necessary. That did not go over well, it sounds like, with House Democrat members. And sounds like a couple of them told reporters it will not be until at least after the August recess that they will even probably consider taking up it up to vote. Okay. Uh, you know, not terribly shocking. I guess we're heading into July, we're 15 days away. So wait till the end of August. So then it's post Labor Day, mm-hmm. right? That they'll be considering it. I I guess so. All right. Well, you know that he did mention that we'll get into a quote funny time when uh, members of Congress won't be willing to make a vote. And I think by funny time he meant election season, mm. which uh, of course this year is not the not a huge deal. But you know, as we roll into 2020, that is going to be a huge discussion. That could certainly slow down any pending votes or implementation. Yes, and it sounds like legislators are working ahead for at least 2020 to get some sort of budget put in place. The reason I bring it up or the reason I think it might be kind of important for uh, rural America and agriculture is because House lawmakers will soon have the opportunity to vote on increasing money for broadband to continue building out that for rural America and There are six different amendments that will make it to the floor probably today or are deemed eligible to be at least on the floor today to get a vote, which would essentially just provide more funding for the fiscal year 2020 to help with Internet connectivity in rural America. And that's one uh, one of the issues I'm very passionate about. It is because you have crap Internet back at home and I do, too. So this is a very important issue. Very important, as I'm sure many of our other uh, podcasters would would also agree. Right. You know, I know there's a lot of folks who are downloading podcasts, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, on free Wi-Fi, usually at (laughs) work or at coffee shops to listen to them later when we get home and the Internet is terrible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, speaking of terrible, we had a statement from the FOMAC, the Federal Open Market Committee of the Fed, earlier today. They have been meeting for the past three days, assessing whether or not the economy is terrible enough 
to cut interest rates. They decided today they will not be cutting interest rates. They issued their statement. Several key uh, parts of that statement were that they said the labor market remains strong and that economic activity is rising at a moderate rate. They said job gains have been solid on average and the unemployment rate has remained low. They did mention that although the household spending appears to be growing, business spending on fixed investments has been soft. This is something that has them concerned, and they think that as we look ahead to the future, there is a lot of uncertainty. They said they are closely going to monitor implications of the incoming information for the economic outlook and will, quote, Act as appropriate to sustain the expansion with a strong labor market and inflation near its 2% objective. A lot of Fed watchers have interpreted this to mean they are opening the door for rate cuts later on in the year. So no mm. changes of, uh, you know, today the federal funds rate will remain at two and a quarter to two and a half percent. But now it definitely appears as though they're giving the green light to uh, to cut rates again as we get throughout the remainder of 2019. Okay, so a little bit of a little bit of good, maybe neutral news there. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean the bad news is that if they're going to cut rates it's because they believe the economy yeah. is starting to weaken. The good news is for a lot of us in agriculture or other debt heavy industries, yeah, cutting interest rates can oftentimes uh, be a benefit especially when margins are slim. Yes. Well, it sounds like um Zippy Duvall, American Farm Bureau president, is worried that margins might be slim again for folks in 2020 and issued some interesting statements that said, you know, farmers might need more trade aid if we see this political fighting continue on during the 2020 election cycle because of tariffs and whatnot and said that the government's really probably going to have to look into a third round of aid next year and didn't really give any details as to how he expects that to go through. He just said the deeper we get into campaign season, the more difficult it might become since folks will be focusing more on getting reelected potentially, including President Trump, and maybe focusing a little bit less on those issues impacting rural America. Boy, you know, I, Zippy's job is, of course, to fight on behalf of farmers. And, of course, the tariffs have been a drag on uh, on farm prices. But I think he's going to have a tough time selling it to Congress with Dees 19 corn over 450 mm. and Nob 19 beans still hovering around 930. Oh, it's going to be tough to sell that we need some more government cheese yeah. to get through this next year. But, well, you know. He Campaign season, of course, the floodgates typically open or the spigots open on the money faucet. So we'll see. And I, I'm reading a little bit between the lines here, but he had a quote that said, not because of the treaty itself, not because of the need itself, but just because of the rhetoric, rhetoric around the election. That's almost implying to me that maybe it's a little bit because of, you know, this potential or this conspiracy theory that China's really just holding out to see if President Trump gets reelected or not. Mm. I, I, I'm kind of reading outside the lines there, but. Well, and I, you know, I hear that line and I hear rhetoric around the election and I think time for Uncle Sam to buy some votes. Mm. And in case Uncle Sam is Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress doling out that federal money to make sure that rural America stays on uh, Team R rather than switching over to Team D. But. As of right now, most of their trade policies are essentially the same as Trump, so I don't know what that would do. Yeah, I'm not sure either.
All right. Well, we do have news out of uh, Farmers National Company. They issued a press release earlier today that said despite the slower land market and more cautious buyers, FNC has experiencing or is experiencing a strong 29% increase in the number of acres sold over last year and 22% more acres sold than two years ago. Um, I thought this was interesting given the fact that it does seem to me to imply that landowners are going, hey, things are slowing down, risks are rising in farm country. Maybe now is the time to unload grandpa's farm that we inherited, mm-hmm. or maybe dad's retiring. And, uh, you know, the kids are saying, let's let's take the check while land prices are fairly stable. So this could be a halfway decent time to begin looking at farm ground with more acres on the market than we've seen in the past few years. That's exciting for folks that are beginning farmers and maybe needed to needed just some land access to get started themselves. Yeah, the the flip side is the reason they're selling is because values remain strong. So you're yeah. you might have the chance to buy more land, but you're going to have to write a sizable check to do it in most cases. Yes, that is unfortunately true. Yes, it is, Delaney Howell. What else you got for us? Well, I don't know if you guys brought this up on Friday. I couldn't be on the podcast, unfortunately. But talking about what's going on right now in D.C. in regards to the relocation of the ERS, or the Economic Research Mm -hmm. Service, Uh, I think you guys probably talked about how they had, what was it, what would you call it, a stand-up? I don't know. So we didn't talk about that. That happened actually after the podcast was cut on Friday. We just talked about the announcement of moving ERS and NEFA to Kansas City. But yeah, so EPA had a big meet, not EPA, excuse me, USDA had a big meeting. It was an all hands meeting and they called everybody into a big auditorium for Secretary Perdue to talk. And Delaney, what happened at that meeting? So essentially the... A lot of the folks, well, well, let me back up here for a second. So about a month ago, ERS employees unionized because most of them are ticked off about having to relocate to Kansas City. At some sort of formal announcement last week when Secretary Perdue was presenting it, instead of listening or supporting it or, or whatever, I would say most, if not all, of the employees at this meeting or announcement essentially turned their backs, stood up and turned their backs to Secretary Purdue. And I'm sure you've probably seen pictures, if not news stories about this. But we've now seen, since they did unionize largely last month, they are looking to launch negotiations with the USDA over Secretary Purdue's plan to uproot the agency and put it in Kansas City. It sounds like these folks are not happy about this. But Secretary Perdue has been quoted in saying that it would save about $300 million over the next 15 years and help improve customer service by bringing the agency closer to farm country, which I think kind of makes sense. But those people out in D.C. are just not having it. You know, I saw a really interesting suggestion from, uh, I don't remember, somebody on Twitter. The idea was, all right, we need to cut costs. D.C. is the most expensive city in the country, I think, outside of San Francisco. Home values are astronomical. Rents are absurd. It is very costly to have folks in D.C. if they don't really need to be there. If you're a Mm -hmm. researcher, if you're a scientist, you can kind of do that work from anywhere. But 
then you are still going to have to meet with other branches of the government. You're going to have to present your findings to Congress. You're going to have to be in D.C. fairly often to complete your job duties. So the suggestion I saw was, look, why don't we look at like Baltimore? They're close enough that everybody can take the train. KC, you got to fly back to D.C., which is going to raise some costs. And I thought that was interesting. And so I wonder, as these negotiations proceed, if they'll look at other places Mm -hmm. that might still facilitate the commute to D.C., but also accomplish Secretary Purdue's aim of cutting costs and getting, you know, non-essential, not non-essential employees, obviously, but they don't need to be in Washington. There's no special advantage of doing research in Washington versus doing it anywhere else. And I think that's where he's coming from. The question is, how will all of these negotiations play out? Yeah, so it sounds like going to Kansas City is not a done deal. No. Uh, nope. South Finley sounds like you're right. Although I will say, I know we've got some listeners at USDA who tune into us. KC's a great place. Before you stand up and really throw sand on it, take a visit. Come down. Have some barbecue. Listen to some music. You know, go on the, uh, is it the promenade? What do they call the fancy shopping area downtown? Delaney, you spent some time the in plaza? D.C. In the The plaza. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, Casey, other than the interstates at rush hour, Casey's a fantastic city. I agree. I agree. Well, I've got some news. I am, as a lot of our listeners know, a uh, critic of the Trump administration's economic policy, mainly looking at tariffs. And we've got some news that is tariff-related. U.S. Steel, which has been the major beneficiary of the second longest-running round of tariffs, the steel and aluminum tariffs that Trump put into effect after the washing machine and solar panel tariffs early in 2018. U.S. Steel has been expanding the tariffs allowed them to raise their prices. It allowed, uh, you know, domestic prices to come up because all of a sudden Chinese and, and all of our other competitors' prices were up. And so U.S. Steel had a great year last year. They opened up some additional plants. They really increased hiring. Well, what has happened is that the higher prices have now started to hurt demand for steel. And it was announced that U.S. Steel Corp. is going to idle two of its blast furnaces in the U.S. and one in Europe because softening demand has led them to forecast current quarter earnings below Wall Street estimates. This I bring up. It's not directly related to agriculture, but it shows, I think, some of the some of the ways in which tariffs can become a circular firing squad. We start shooting at our neighbors, we reap benefits temporarily, and then all of a sudden, consumers who have been paying higher prices for steel, in this instance, cut back. Now we've got to lay off people, and we're right back in the same boat, but now we're stuck with higher prices. So tariffs, definitely a market intervention definitely changing the way the markets are functioning. And this is going to be one of the huge challenges all investors, whether you're in equities or commodities, are going to have to be dealing with over the next two to six years, depending on the outcome in 2020, um, as long as these trade wars are taking place. I just think our listeners need to be aware of that. It's not all fun and games when it comes to tariffs. No, absolutely not. Well, Delaney, what other news stories do you have for us today? Well, you know, I think that's pretty much all the news I had for today. Mike, do you have anything else or should we chat about those commodity markets? 
Well, we will chat about the markets in one second, but I want to circle back. I've got one other story that I thought was interesting. The Genetic Literacy Project. This is a group that is out there. Their job or their their goal is to make sure that consumers in particular understand a lot of the science that is being discussed when we're having conversations about GMOs or, or modern agricultural practices. Delaney. Two weeks ago, mm-hmm. do you remember seeing on CNN and MSNBC and, and I think even Fox News some of the claims that many breakfast cereals are contaminated by the weed killer glyphosate? Do you remember seeing those headlines? They were kind of all over Facebook for a while. Um, No, and I don't really watch a lot of mainstream news, to be honest with you. Okay, well, I definitely saw these headlines being shared on Twitter, and this whole uh, – mess was started by a group called the environmental working group and uh, ewg does a lot of things you know they publish you know various uh, reports of farmers receiving government benefits they do receive funding from the organic industry they issued a news release titled major food companies like general mills continue to sell popular children's breakfast cereals and other foods contaminated with troubling levels of glyphosate the cancer-causing ingredient in the herbicide roundup Hmm. Well, Genetic Literacy Project has done some digging. And A, the cancer-causing ingredient in the herbicide Roundup is very much a disputed settlement. EPA or statement, the EPA, of course, disagrees with that. So does pretty much every other government body around the world. Um, They also looked into what they were doing to determine this. And uh, EWG says their study was based on a, quote, round of tests. Uh, This round of tests was not peer-reviewed by independent experts. It was all done in-house at the Environmental Working Group. And what they are citing as dangerous, quote, dangerous levels of glyphosate was that they did not pass their, EWG's, children's health benchmark in assessing exposure levels. Well, the, quote, benchmark at EWG is entirely made up. It has zero scientific basis, and it is at odds, according to the Genetic Literacy Project, with historically established and globally recognized benchmarks used by regulators in every country. Essentially, what Genetic Literacy Project is saying is that that entire story, which made the rounds of, I think my little sister was sharing it, every mom's group on Facebook was basically a gigantic scare tactic to drum up resistance to GMO crops, particularly those that are herbicide or glyphosate resistant, and to scare people into thinking that this insanely non-toxic pesticide is going to be harming their children. If you've got a second, listeners, and if this is an issue that's important to you, Google up the Genetic Literacy Project. You'll find this study or this counter study that they've done. It is titled Experts Dismantle EWG's Glyphosate in Serial Study. It's worth reading. If you're going to be going to a family event or a cookout where you know some vegan cousin is going to be there and they're going to be spouting all kinds of claims – Here's some resources for you to kind of stick up for our industry and stick up for utilizing modern science in the realm of agriculture. I just want to make sure our listeners are aware of that, Delaney. Okay. That was almost like a little mini rant. It, it kind of was. And and honestly, the Genetic Literacy Project's uh, press release is 
is kind of a rant. The fact oh. that EWG gets away with this and the fact that they're able to command screen time on the major networks is insanely frustrating. And uh, I think the folks who are actually science-based at the Genetic Literacy Project are are kind of fed up with it. It's kind of how the, the press release read. It was pretty good. Okay, interesting. We'll keep that uh, yes. on the things list of things to watch. Yes, keep it on things to watch. Keep it uh, keep it handy. Print off a copy, stick it in your back pocket. When you go to those family barbecues at the 4th of July and uh, corn-fed beef or genetic modification comes up, whip this out and just start beating down on those anti-science whack jobs that we all have in our families. Okay. All right, then. All right. Well, that out of the way, let's jump <laughs> mm. into these markets and see how things finished for the day. Okay, let's do it. All right, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, we're up, we're down, we're all around in this market. You don't know what's going to pop out of your fields. You don't know how yields are going to progress. This is the year to have a marketing plan. This is the year to consult with experts and utilize all of the tools at your disposal, including futures and options. You can do that with our friends at Zaner. Give them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the internet at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. It is red pretty well all down the screen today, one exception being the hog market, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start with corn. September corn down nine and a quarter cents at 446 and a quarter. December new crop down nine and three quarters, finished at 453 and a quarter. In soybeans, the August was off 10 and three quarter cents today, finished at 909 and a half. November down 11 and a half, finished at 928 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, the SEP was off eight and three quarter cents at 526 and three quarters. December down 10 and three quarters to close the day at 536 even. As I mentioned in livestock, cattle complex in the red today. August live cattle down a dollar at 104.55. The October down 95 cents. Close the day at 106.10. Feeders, not an exception. The September, excuse me, August contract down 72.5 cents at 136.52.50. September down 60. Finished the day at 137 even. The lone bright spot, the lone bright spot was in hogs with the August contract up a dollar 30. Closed at 83 dollars even. The October October was up 85 cents to finish at 77.45. In dairy, we saw mixed trade throughout the day today. June finished unchanged at 16.28, with the July Class 3 milk contract up a dime. Closed the day at 16.97. Without further ado, Delaney, what do you say? Should we jump into our interview with Mike Steenhoek from the Soy Transportation Coalition? Let's do it. Well, obviously, as weather continues to be an issue, we've got to continue having weather-related discussions and how they're impacting, in today's instance, part of the supply chain. We've got Mike Steenhook, who is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, joining us today. Mike, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, you and I have previously talked, I believe, back in late March, early April, after the quote-unquote biome cyclone hit some of the Midwest, and now we're still in a period of wet weather conditions and flooding in a lot of areas. Give us an update from your perspective on the transportation issues and where that all sits today. It's, it's certainly you know, creating havoc for farmers and the whole agricultural supply chain. And you know, there's a number of challenges confronting farmers currently, certainly on the supply side with farmers and their inability uh, or tardiness in, in their ability to get uh, a crop 
uh, into the into ground and being able to start you know the, the planting process. Certainly, there are challenges on the demand side of the equation, most notably with the trade standoff with China. And now we're seeing some real challenges on the supply chain, our transportation system that connects supply with demand. And so it really is expressing itself and exhibiting itself on our rural roads and bridges, our highways and interstates, our freight rail system with track washout that has occurred and you know, the recovery is ongoing with that. And then arguably the most pronounced example is with the inland waterway system with high water events, which has essentially closed the river uh, really since March. You know, the, you know with, with little exception, the, the upper Mississippi River has been closed and the other major inland waterways have had been severely restricted. And so it really is making our transportation system more cumbersome, less economical, and it's just adding an additional challenge uh, in the whole agricultural industry. Mike, let's go into a little bit of detail, specifically on the high water effects on the upper Mississippi, the Illinois, the Ohio rivers. When we think about the amount of soy that gets barged south to the Gulf of Mexico every single year, especially during this time of year, what have been the ramifications upstream? Have we seen, uh, I mean, soy piles maintaining condition? Are we railing everything south? What's going on? A number of challenges. You know, first of all, I think it's important to note that the inland waterway system is responsible for transporting a lot of the production that farmers generate, but it's also responsible for a lot of the inputs. And so we saw earlier in the spring, April and May, uh, a real significant pullback on the amount of fertilizer being shipped northbound on the river, and that's usually the, the busiest times of the year for fertilizer delivery. So that really had a, a, a challenge on the input side. And, of course, on the, on the export side, uh, a number of, of problems. Uh, number one, there are certain areas where you just cannot access the river. So farmers are, they would like to sell some of their 2018 crop. Prices have rebound. So it's kind of a, a price signal for farmers wanting to make these deliveries. They're wanting to turn on that spigot, uh, essentially, but there's not an effective hose to hook up to that spigot. And that's what our transportation system is, is that hose that hooks up to it. And so we're seeing storage get exhausted, both on farm and also at the delivery locations um, for those products, for those soybeans and grain that are, that are being delivered. They're often having to be rerouted and onto a different mode of transportation like truck, like rail. Anytime you do that kind of shift, there's going to be a cost associated with it, an additional cost. Uh, but it really shows, I, you know, I, I saw a statistic from the U.S. Department of Agriculture that there has been a 200% increase in the volume of rail car deliveries to the export terminals near New Orleans. Those export terminals are, are usually overwhelmingly served by barge, naturally so, because the Mississippi River connects with it. But because the Mississippi River has not been this artery uh, effective artery for the agricultural supply chain, we're having to rely on alternative modes of transportation like rail. So the, the flooding conditions, it's in some cases, it's providing no access to the international markets, or at times you're going to have to reroute it, which means it's a more costly um, 
supply chain, which for a tight margin industry like agriculture, that can really be punitive. We don't have the luxury of just absorbing additional costs uh, in our supply chain uh, because we have such tight margins. Absolutely. Mike, I, I want to ask about a, a bit of a comparison here between 1993 and the current conditions we've had. We've seen a lot of crop experts comparing yields and acreage back to the year of 1993 when obviously we had a lot of flooding going on. And I don't know how long you've been at the Soy Transportation Coalition exactly, but walk us through, are there any, I mean, I guess how dire is this current situation that we're in here in 2019 and how does that compare back to the year of 1993 when we faced some similar situations? Well, I, I remember 1993. Uh, I'm from Central Iowa, so I experienced kind of the, the challenges, you know, from that flooding event. You know, one of the things I like to explain to you know people who you know may not be too accustomed to agriculture is, you know, farmers and those who are engaged in agriculture are hardy folk. We're not. We're, we we've experienced flooding events before. This is not our first rodeo when it comes to flooding. What is unique, though, about this particular year is how widespread the damage has been. You've got major flooding conditions uh, that's had an impact on farming and also the agricultural supply chain. You know, in the Arkansas River area, the Mississippi River, the Illinois River, a bit on the Ohio River, you know, the lower parts of the Mississippi River, you're seeing this. It's 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 a the, the size of the footprint is quite notable and quite unique. But then also how elongated this flooding event has been. You know, oftentimes you'll have a flooding event that may you know create hardship for a period of weeks, and then all of a sudden you start to recover from it. This situation has really been uh, manifest, you know, since March, and here we are in the middle of June, and we're still struggling with it. And with rain continuing in the forecast for much of the Midwest, this is something that we're going to continue to wrestle with for the foreseeable future. And it really just kind of is a result of a number of events that kind of dovetailed with one another. We had a uh, a, a, a wet, wetter than normal uh, fall in 2018, and then that dovetailed with a, a winter that had more consistent cold more severe cold and more snowfall than normal. And then that dovetailed directly with a wetter than normal spring. And so all of a sudden when you have these rain events that are maybe three inches, four inches, five inches, which is a, a considerable amount of water, but it's not that unique in the Midwest, all of a sudden it created some real turmoil with compromising levees and, and creating some of these flooding conditions that we saw throughout the Midwest. So that's what really makes this this particular event so unique. And then with the backstop of it, some real challenges in the overall farm economy with with trade and a host of other areas, it, it just really is adding insult to injury. Now, Mike, one of the things that Soy Transportation Coalition has been really, really pushing for is getting some action on the federal level to update and modernize our our 
inland waterway system. Does a flood event like this, as you mentioned, is having huge impacts across many sectors of the economy from Minnesota all the way down to Louisiana, up through Ohio and Missouri and North Dakota and everywhere else. Is this something that might help spur some action on Capitol Hill? Are we hearing more conversations about the need to modernize and update our inland water systems? Well, you never wish for a catastrophe, but you're foolish if you don't take advantage of a catastrophe. And and so that's one of the things that, you know, we're trying to do because a catastrophe like this, you know, what it does as, as unsavory as it is, it, it really allows us to concentrate attention on an issue that frankly should be on our radar screen, you know, elected officials' radar screen consistently. But it's often, you know, the, kind of the rule of thumb in Washington, D.C. is you only pay attention to the calamity of the day. And so this does afford a, an opportunity to really showcase and highlight the importance of this infrastructure, the importance of the supply chain that allows us to connect what farmers grow to our customers domestically and, and around the world. And so that's something that we were really want to make sure is, a, is an area of focus. Um, a lot of times when you, when you discuss infrastructure, the discussion tends to center on making your infrastructure cost effective, making it reliable, making it fast. And those are very important variables, and we need to continue to promote those. But one of the things that we're increasingly seeing for the other supply chain, but also transportation is, in general, is making sure that we have a resilient supply chain. And wherever you fall on the whole philosophical spectrum about climate change, um, the reality is you're seeing these kind of events occur with greater frequency. So when you are designing and maintaining an infrastructure, you can't just design it to make sure that you get from point A to point B in the fastest time frame or the lowest in the most economical manner, you also have to make sure you're designing and maintaining it in a way that is resilient to some of these weather events. There's not a whole lot you can do about mother nature when she decides to impose herself, but there's a whole lot you can do about positioning yourself to withstand those punches and those blows when they do occur. And so that's something that we really need to make sure is an area of focus as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and hopefully Congress or, or folks out in D.C. are working to make the necessary changes to get this all fixed. But Mike, from your perspective, what is the long-term forecast here to get everything back up and running to 100% from a transportation standpoint? I, I, I wish it was a matter of days and more than likely it's going to be a matter of weeks. You know, there were a number of these locks and dams that were scheduled to, that, you know, that currently still very well could reopen yet this week. But again, you've got some additional water that's going to be making its way through the system. And so you could see those uh, those water levels get to a point where it kind of triggers an automatic shutdown uh, once again. So that's, that's certainly uh, a likelihood that we're going to see this continue to be elongated. Even if the rivers were to be fully open, um, it, it's it's not like a car race where you have where you're under a cautionary yellow flag and then all of a sudden you wave the green flag and then you're able to go back up to 200 miles an hour uh, just just in a few short seconds. 
this is something that's going to take some time for us to get back to full throttle when it comes to our, our transportation system. You still are going to have these high water levels. You're going to have a, a, a pretty fast current. Um, bridge clearances for these barge tows or flotillas, that's still going to be restricted a bit. So it's not going to be an infrastructure that's going to be you're firing on all cylinders. So it is going to take some time. And you know the real worry that we have is we've got a we've got a, a given amount of of the 2018 harvest that still wants to find its way to our customer. You're also going to have a 2019 harvest someday uh, later this fall occur. And so all of a sudden you're going to be having to have a, a transportation system that can absorb that volume in a shorter than normal period of time that remains a concern. Mike, if our listeners want to stay active or perhaps get active on pushing for modernization and reforms in the transportation system, what's the best way they can to get involved? Well, they can always contact uh, the Soy Transportation Coalition at soytransportation.org. But we, one of our key members of the organization is the American Soybean Association. They're kind of the, the public policy uh, advocate for soybean farmers throughout the country. Uh, we work very closely with them on issues related to the inland waterway system and a host of other issues. So clearly the American Soybean Association is a good resource, as well as the individual state soybean associations. So um, you know, making sure that farmers are engaged in this issue. One of the things I routinely um, highlight is that if, if farmers aren't willing to promote a transportation system that is favorable to them in, in this industry, we should not expect people from New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles to do it for us. So we, we need to be at the forefront of these important issues. Absolutely. That is very, very true. Mike Steenhook from the Soy Transportation Coalition, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for giving us an update on this vital issue for rural America. Thanks for having me. Well, interesting stuff there that Mike had to share. Just, I tell you what, I've got a lot of interviews lined up to keep discussing this topic, but it's just, there's just a lot to unravel when you consider this year's weather-related issues. Right, and like Mike said, this might be the year that helps spur policymakers into action. So, I, gosh, you hate to see heartbreak fall on people like we're seeing this year, but at the same time, if it can spur action... You know, let's let's utilize this challenging year for good. Let's do it. All right, folks. And if you want to get tuned up on other things you can do for good, you can always listen to our past episodes by going to agnewsdaily.com. Or you can always find us on Facebook and Twitter. We want to hear from you. We want your suggestions. We want to know what your thoughts are. Just search for at agnewsdaily in both places. And we shall appear as if by magic. Without further ado, Delaney, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 